piece of cardboard. <laughs> Think about it, Xbox, you know? Eh. Before we begin today, I need to give a shout out to my old college alma mater, Harding University, where some of you may have attended. I know we have some other alumni, Colin Sarai, uh, Stan and Connie Burnett. Uh, <coughs> Carol back here went to Harding. Uh, and I know some of you built some buildings out there with your money. I know I did, because my kids went there too. Their uh, football team is going to be playing in the CAA Division II National Championship next Saturday. And if you'd asked me 40 years ago, if you'd have told me 40 years ago the Harding University was going to play in the National Championship, I would have laughed in your face. <laughs> Can't believe it. it. Miracles do happen, I guess. So, Pretty excited about that. I hadn't followed them in years, and all of a sudden I find out that they're in the playoffs and they're going to be in the championship. So, anyways, I digress a little bit, but I had to get that out of my system. Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 11 and uh, begin our study today. And by the way, I do want to mention, I did watch the after game a little bit when the coach was talking, you know, and it was so refreshing to hear a coach saying everything he does is devoted to God. And, you know, you don't hear that in the, you know, the Sugar Bowl or in the National Championship. You don't hear that. Yeah, you hear some players say, I do everything for God, and then they go out and, you know, cursing every other bread and that kind of thing. So it was very refreshing to hear that, that a coach was actually saying everything they did was because of God. You don't hear that very often. So that was pretty, pretty neat. All right, Mark chapter 11, beginning of verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says we will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Okay, so far in Mark's gospel, we've considered a few things, right? We have the last week of his life uh, here on earth. Uh, we have the triumphant entry that occurs on Sunday and a brief visit to the, to the temple. On Monday, we have the cursing of the fig tree, which we talked about in our last class. And then, of course, the cleansing of the temple. That all occurred on Monday. Now it's Tuesday, and they're coming back into the city, and they pass the fig tree. And Peter notices that the fig tree is dried up to its roots. And he mentions it, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered away. Kind of like a miracle, right? Kind of like something that just happened overnight. Very interesting. And Jesus can, takes that opportunity to teach, which he does so many times, right? The narrative here is that he tells his disciples about having faith in God. And with faith that has no doubt, he says, a mountain can be cast into the sea. Well, that's a pretty powerful statement, right? He's telling the disciples that as they pray, believing they will receive, whatever they ask, they will be given. Interesting concept, right? Something that we can take to heart, something that can encourage us, right? But something we need to talk about a little bit. We need to observe a few things. This passage clearly teaches the importance of faith and prayer. We must believe. If we're going to pray, we need to be believing that whatever we ask, he'll, he'll give to us, right? We need to have the faith to understand what we're asking is something that he will do for us. But that faith has to be in God 
according to his will, right? It's not just about whatever we want, right? It's not just about whatever makes us happy. It's not just about whatever we ask for and we're going to take and use for our advantage, right? Scripture is very plain about this. Moving a mountain was a metaphor in, in the Jewish uh, literature. It's, you can read about it. There, Isaiah talks about moving a mountain, having faith to move a mountain. It's not something that literally can be done in this world, but it's something that's used to understand that you can do something if you believe it, if you have enough faith, right? Something that seems impossible. And God, do, God does delight to give good things to those who believe, to those who ask him, and to those who need his help. Request his help. Lean on him. Trust in him. He delights in that. Those entrusted to God for the right things in the right way can have confidence that God will supply our every need, but according to his will. Something we need to keep in mind. Philippians 4, we, we, uh, we quote a few passages in there many often, you know, quite often, right? We say he supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus knowing he will work all things together for good and will graciously give us all things. We quote that passage a lot, and it's a great passage to have as an anchor, to hold on to when we're feeling that need to have his presence, to be, have his help, right? But it can be misused as well, right? A lot of folks tend to take a passage like this and say, whatever I ask physically will be done for me, and that's not the case. That's not the way it works. We understand that we must always have that same perspective that the Jews has, that Jesus had, that it's confidence in God's power, but also we must be submissive to his will. It's not what I will, but what he wills. We're going to talk about that more in chapter 14, actually. So if we are to grow in faith as we pray, we need to be thinking about what that means exactly. What does it mean to grow in faith in Christ Jesus? When we pray, we know we need to ask as well as ask for supplication, but ask what he wants for our lives, how we are to serve in the kingdom, how we are to help each other. It's not about us. It's about how we are to be part of the kingdom as children of God. We must pray with a forgiving spirit, as is mentioned here. Verse 25, he says, And whenever you stand praying... If you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Hmm. So he talks about that faith that we need to have. We need to pray with that great faith, so great that we could tell a mountain to be cast into the sea. But he says, but if you're not praying with a forgiving spirit, if you're not praying with the idea that you are forgiving those who have done you wrong, why is God going to forgive you? He won't. That's what he's saying here. We need to pray with a forgiving spirit. Jesus talked about this a lot. In fact, there's several passages where he talks about having that forgiving spirit. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, in his response to Peter's question on Matthew 18, in the parable of the unforgiving servants, you remember that one? Yeah. In the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, and teaching the disciples how to pray in Luke 11. Talked about asking for forgiveness and teaching his disciples to forgive in Luke 17. Jesus and his followers demonstrated that forgiving spirit. Remember? What did he do on the cross? One of the thieves said, you will be a me in paradise. 
right? He had a forgiving spirit. He had a wonderfully forgiving spirit. Paul was forgiving when he was abandoned. Second Timothy 4, he talked about it. We must develop a forgiving spirit, which, can, which we can do by what? Well, first and foremost, focusing on God's love, right? We need to understand what he has done for us, how he loves us, how he provides for us and takes care of us. When you do that, when you understand how you're nothing without him, and you have that humble uh, spirit, that humble uh, attitude, it's easier to be forgiving, isn't it? It's easier to understand that you need to be forgiven, therefore you need to forgive others. You need to be willing to forgive others. Remembering Christ's willingness to die and forgive. right? He was willing to go to the cross for you. Are you willing to do something like that? Especially for someone who's done you wrong. As anything else, we learn, we grow, we develop more of a forgiving spirit, a humble spirit, by reading the word, by reading these passages about the importance of forgiving others, about what Jesus did for us, about how God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that we might have eternal life. Meditating on these passages can be very helpful to growing our faith and to being willing to forgive. When you think about yourself, is there someone in your life who you really have something against because of what they did or said or did to you? Or Is there someone like that? Maybe you need to let that go. Maybe there's something in your spirit that's holding you up because of that. Perhaps it's keeping you from growing. You need to consider the blessings that come from that acceptable prayer. Being able to pray to the creator of the universe is an awesome privilege. And we don't think about that all the time, right? Our prayer tends to get, you know, rote. Uh, our prayer tends to get, um, you know, passe. It's just something we do every day. We get up in the morning and we pray. Not thinking about who we're praying to. The God who created you, who created the universe, who has the power to forgive your sins, who has the power to bless you, to provide for you, to give you eternal life. Maybe we need to think about that foremost a few more times, a little bit more, especially when we pray. We need to be confessing our frailties, our shortcomings, our nothingness without God. I'm saying it plainly, really. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus uses that to teach the disciples about prayer and forgiveness. Well, let's continue on in chapter 11 there. And we're going to see some other things that are going to occur. This is on Tuesday, uh, beginning in verse 27 in chapter 11. There it says, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, then he's going to say, Well, why then didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. 
So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. Now, can you just, can you just imagine that picture? Here's these leaders coming in here. We got him now. We're going to get him. We're going to ask a question. He's, we're going to get either way to you. But the wisdom of Jesus is so great. He confounds them. And they're like, oh, what do we do now? We don't know. I can just see that picture in my mind. Jesus answered and said to them, that neither will I tell you for what authority I do these things. All right. What can we take from this? Well, here we are. Jesus has returned to the temple on Tuesday. And he's confronted by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And they question his authority. In response, Jesus challenges them regarding their authority. And he asks them the question about John the Baptist. We just talked about what they say, what they did, how they didn't have a good answer. And Jesus refuses to answer them. Because he knew what they were doing. It's an interesting concept, though. A good principle to understand. How do we know what comes from heaven or what comes from men? The scribes and elders, they didn't know what to say. They knew if they said one thing, you're going to make somebody upset. Another thing, somebody else is going to be upset. So they're kind of caught in a catch-22, right? They're in between. Between a rock and a hard place. But guess what? You can know. You can know the difference between things that come from men and things that come from God. What Jesus asked regarding John's baptism could be asked of many religious practices today. Infant baptism. Sprinkling instead of immersion, right? The impossibility of apostasy. A clergy laity construction where you have a priesthood that does all the stuff and everybody else is just out there in the crowd. Instrumental music, burning of incense, etc. Are these practices from heaven or are they from men? Well, let's consider that. First and foremost, if they're from heaven, then they need to come from Jesus. Don't you agree? I mean, Matthew 28, passage says, All power has been and authority has been given unto Jesus. So if he's been given all authority, both in heaven and on earth, then if he commands something, you can pretty well know it's from heaven, right? You pretty well know if it came from Jesus, it's from heaven. Certainly if Jesus commanded it. Then in John 13, particularly verse 20, we read that Jesus delegated this authority to the apostles. He said, if anyone believes in whom I send, they believe in me. In other words, he's saying the apostles have the authority given to them from Jesus. And if Jesus is from heaven, then obviously what they have to tell us is from heaven. They serve us as official ambassadors for heaven. They ensure reliability, and also Jesus promises them later, right? You read that in John 14 about the Spirit. That will be sent to remind them of what he taught and to guide them in all truth. So, we know if it comes through the apostles, it comes from heaven. Apostles taught it, then it's from heaven. Also, we need to consider the fact that it must only come from the apostles. They were given and proclaimed the whole counsel of God, Acts 20 and 27. 2 Peter 1, verse 3, they were given all that they need to pertain to life and godliness. Jude 3, 
They delivered a faith through that was there once for all. In other words, there's no need for anything else. We have all we need through the teaching that comes from Jesus that was delivered through the apostles. The apostles taught it, therefore it's truly from heaven. <laughs> Religious practices from men may come from various sources, right? If it's from men, sometimes they can change because it's based on the majority. You ever notice that? I mean, that's how our government's set up, basically, right? Democracy. But it's not exactly because the founding fathers understood that the rule of the majority wasn't always correct. Sometimes the majority was wrong. And so they tried to base it on a republic, representative republic, that had everybody's say, not just the, more, the majority, you know, that's in New York or in the big cities. It's everyone gets a say in it. In fact, in Noah's day, <laughs> if you'd have been in the majority, what would have happened to you? <laughs> you'd have drowned. How about Joshua's day? Where did the majority end up? Dead in the wilderness, right? What the majority believes is likely from men. How about what your parents taught you? Oh, 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 what your parents taught you? You're supposed to, you, you're supposed to believe what your parents teach, aren't you? Some say if it was good for mom and dad, it was good for me too. Much as we love and respect our parents, Christ must come first. If every generation followed their parents, the Gentiles would be still be idol worshipers, right? They'd still be pantheistic, worshiping many gods, like the Gentiles did in the Old Testament. How about uh, based on what preachers tell us? Are we basing our faith in a religion on what the preacher says? Well. That's a good thing. We have a preacher here. He's going to deliver a lesson here in uh, about an hour. Should we believe everything he says? He's just a man. Hmm. Common for people to place their trust in the preacher. Well, the preacher said it. It must be true, right? <clears throat> Paul warned of being led astray. And you can be led astray if you're not careful. Jesus warned about the blind, leading the blind, right? Preacher's only good as the authority behind his teaching. You know that? Acts 17, Paul talks about it. If based on creeds or traditions of men, we know it's from man. Adherence to creeds produces denominations. If you accept the Bible only, then you become a Christian only. If you accept the Book of Mormon, you become a Mormon. If you accept uh, papal authority, the Pope, who gives you more revelation than what's in the Scripture, then you become a Catholic. If you accept the Lutheran Catechism, you become a Lutheran. Creeds are not necessary. If it's more than what the Bible says, you don't need it. If it's less than what the Bible says, they say too little. It's the same as the Bible. Why do you need it? I've heard people say the Bible's too hard to read. Nah, it's not too hard to read. 
It's just you're too lazy to try to understand it. Just saying. What about based on conscience? Let your conscience be your guide. Remember Paul talked about that, right? He's had a good conscience his whole life, yet he was persecuting Christians before he was converted. Conscience ain't always right either, is it? How about human wisdom? Oh, that's big these days, right, in the world? Existentialism, humanism. You know, man can think, therefore he is. He can determine what is right for himself. Many believe they can determine right and wrong because of their wisdom. You know, if it makes sense to them, it must be true. God's thoughts and ways are not always our own. Isaiah 55 1 Corinthians 2, for us to know God's will, he had to reveal it. Which was done through the apostles because the Spirit led them and they wrote it down. And we have it today. How about feelings? Whatever it feels good, must be right. If it feels good, you know, we can do it. Must be good. Proverbs 14, 12, way of which seems right to a man, but leads to ways of death. Saw, uh, Proverbs 28, 26, trusting in your own heart, he who trusts his own heart is a fool. Hmm. How about based solely on the Old Testament? People sometimes revert back to the Old Testament to provide authority, right? Authority that the apostles never said, never wrote. You can't find authority in Jesus' teaching. You know, things like burning of incense, instrumental music, the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, all these things that were designed as a temporary thing to point to the Messiah coming, to point to the law of love, the New Testament, the law that said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It was given because of transgression. It was given because they sinned, and by knowing the law, they knew that they sinned that it was designed to lead to Christ. You got to be careful about taking something in the Old Testament and applying it now. We just had several studies. Galatians was all about the fact that the Judaizing teachers wanted the Christians to be circumcised. Paul said no. No need. Several things we can do. We need to be like the Bereans, though, right? Searching the Scriptures. When we hear Kyle preach today, you ought to be going through your Bible, making sure what he's saying is right. The words in the Bible came from the apostles. You say, well, what about Mark? He wasn't an apostle. Well, Mark was with Peter. Peter taught him everything he needed to know. That's how we know it came from God. Keep that in mind. It's something you ought to remember each day. All right, moving on. We're running out of time. Let's go into chapter 12 here. Verse 1, then he began to speak to them. Remember, he's in the temple now. Began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. Dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, 
He also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected he has become the chief cornerstone. That, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him. But feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. All right. So as we've already talked about, it's Tuesday. He's in the temple, and Jesus begins to speak in parables. After the leaders had tried to catch him, asking about his authority. And you can imagine he's got a little indignation going here, right? You know, how dare you fools try to trick me? I don't know if that was going through his head, but it'd probably be going through mine. And he goes to a parable. Matthew actually has three parables at this point. Mark just does the one. And he talks about a vineyard. What does that make you think of in the vineyard? Who is the vineyard? What's the vineyard? Nation of Israel, right? The leaders, the scribes and elders. But it's not so much Israel as a nation, per se, here, as he's talking about the special advantages, the special opportunities given to the people of Israel, the chosen seed. Because he goes on to explain the vineyard as the kingdom of God that will be given to others, a nation producing its fruit, as he explains later. The man who plants the vineyard is God. The wicked vine dressers represents Israel's leaders, chief priests, scribes, elders, the, the nation as a whole. And then you have servants who were sent on behalf of the landowner, right? Representing the prophets. He sent them many prophets, did he not? That's who we're talking about here. What does Israel as a nation do with these prophets? They were rejected for the most part. Second Chronicles 35, we can read about that. In fact, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 23 and read something real quick. Let's see what Jesus said about that. Matthew 23, verse 37. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed who he comes in the name of the Lord. That's Jesus' woe to Jerusalem because they rejected the prophets and they rejected him. That's who he's referring to in this parable. Of course, the landowner's son, Jesus himself, he's sent by the landowner, and he's also rejected. He talks about this parable. When you think about it, he's, he's trying to have these leaders understand something. Of course, they're just enraged, but he's also having, allowing his disciples to hear some things too here, right? Understand what's going to happen in the future. They don't know. They don't know. They don't get it yet. 
they don't fully understand what's going on here, and he's given them that opportunity. His rejection is foretold. Uh, we read about that in Psalms 118, actually. So we, so we can say they should have known that's coming, right? And he talks about this chief cornerstone, right, in which God would build something new. Had the nation of Israel been built for thousands of years, right? The chosen people, the temple that was built, not once but twice. But Jesus' meaning is talking about something else. The kingdom that's going to be given to others. The kingdom that's going to be taken from Israel and given to all who believe in the church. God often bestows these wonderful privileges, right? He did this with Israel. Israel was so blessed. Had so many privileges. I mean, think about all the wars and battles they had and were given victory because of what God did. Also, they received judgment, too, when they rejected. Remember that? All you got to do is read through the judges to understand that. They would reject him. They'd speak evil against him. In the wilderness, they complained, built idols. We're all blessed to hear the things that the prophets hear, things that kings and other saints of old desired to hear, but they couldn't. We can read about it. And we still make bad use of that privilege, right? Israel constantly murmured, and we tend to do that too, don't we? Skip the services, right? We need to be here to hear God's word preached to us. We need to be reminded, especially when we don't study during the week, especially when we're not living our daily lives in prayer or in service to him. prophets are persecuted and rejected and they rejected Jesus we have these blessings blessings of forgiveness we have the aid of the Holy Spirit we have that joy of fellowship like we have today together and we have that privilege of sharing the gospel being an example speaking to those about what Jesus did for us maybe that's something we need to think about too you know Maybe this parable is not just for the scribes and elders, chief priests. Maybe it's for us, too. That if we're not careful, if we take these privileges and stomp on them, if we don't observe them, if we don't take advantage of them, if we don't humbly come before the Lord and say, bless us, take care of us, please, whatever your will is, be done, maybe he's going to give it to others who will produce fruit, who will love him and understand him. He gives us a choice, right? We can do that. We're not robots. We're not just given the rules to follow. He wants us to love him just as he's loved us. Israel was taken into captivity, right? Assyria, northern kingdom, southern kingdom into Babylonia. God destroyed the temple twice. 167 B.C. by the Syrians, again by Rome in 70 A.D. We need to consider Jesus' words here, right? <clears throat> he told the Hebrew Christians in chapter 10 of Hebrews, be careful. Once you've heard the truth and you disregard it, 
hard to come back. Too much is given, much is required. That's very biblical. Luke 12, you can read about it, verse 48. We've been blessed so much, and yet we still tend to forget about it. Remembering what he's done for us is great. And perhaps this parable not only is for the leaders of Israel, but also for us. Continuing on there in chapter 12, let's read on, verse 13. Then they say to him, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. Yeah, like that's right. And care about no one. You do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They can't catch the guy. All these smart leaders and chief priests and scribes and hypocrites. <laughs> they can't catch him. And they marvel at his wisdom, his smarts. Teaching in the temple, continuing on Tuesday, we've seen his authority questioned. We've seen him deliver the parable of the wicked vine dressers directed at the religious leaders. And now he's approached by the Pharisees and the Herodians, tending to get him. They want to get him in trouble with the authorities. Because if they know if he says something about Caesar, he's going to jail. What does he tell them? The master teacher deals with the question. He calls for a coin. Says, whose inscription is on the Daenerys? Caesar. He's okay. Give to Caesar what's his. Give to God what is God's. How does this relate to us? Makes sense, right? His statement's understandable. We can see what he's saying there. What does that mean as Christians? How should we live? Jesus' point is, we need to pay our taxes. Paul made that point too. Did you know paying your taxes is your duty to God? Yeah, I know it's not easy when, if you've got to write out one of those checks, right? Or when you look at your paycheck and all that money's taken out. Man, that can be kind of daunting to see. But that's what he's saying. Render to Caesar with Caesar's. How about obeying the laws? We are to submit to the ordinances of the land, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. This we do for the Lord's sake, to um, silence foolish men. How about respect and know those in authority? Fear and respect the king, that's Proverbs 24. We are not to speak evil of our rulers, Acts 23 and 5. 1 Peter 2, we are to honor all and love all brethren. We are to respect those who are leaders, whether we want to or not. I know in this country, we like to speak, don't we? We like to have our say, and that's good and well. But we need to show respect because, you know, God raises up nations and he brings them down. So leaders are there for you so we might live peaceably. We are to do good. We are to be ready for every good work, Titus 3. Conduct ourselves 
in a way that's honorable to all. And we need to pray. First Timothy 2, make supplication and giving thanks. Praying for kings and all in authority. Christians, as Christians, our true home is where? Heaven, right? We're not, our home is not here. This is not our be-all, end-all. We're just passing through. So we need to respect and honor the law. We need to respect and honor those who are in power, the authorities. We're not going to be here long. Except when that law and power comes in conflict with God. Matthew 22, verse 34 to 38. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And second is contained with the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. For on these hangs all the law and the prophets. We have to make God our priority. Jesus said true love is keeping his commandments. And when the law of the land does not allow you to do that, that takes precedence. Acts 5 and 27, Peter said, we ought to be obey God rather than men. So this might help answer the question, right? Can a Christian vote? Can a Christian serve in a public office? Some have a problem with that. Can a Christian serve in the military? Hmm. All questions that are valid. <clears throat> if the duty comes too high a price, we need to place our priority with God. Christians must obey God before men. But we need to understand where we are in this world, and we are to respect those who are in authority. Those who are in authority were placed there by God. And yes, there are tyrants that get placed in authority. We need to be careful how we deal with that. We need to live in a way that shows respect to them and honor that we might live peaceably among men did say that we need to obey God some countries don't allow that to happen publicly that's where that comes into play we're blessed we live in a country where we can practice our religion freely to speak freely but it only takes what has been said one generation and that's gone remember to pray to the Lord about our nation about our country about our leaders at all times you watch the news, you can become very depressed. Things going on in the world. But remember, God is in control. We are blessed to have a, Lord, a Father who is willing to watch over us and provide. What a wonderful privilege and blessing that is. Don't forget it. Thanks for being here. Our time is up.